Father, we come before you longing to see you, longing to know you in a greater way. We thank you that you've gathered us to worship, whether here or watching at home. And I pray that you would bring upon us today, through your grace, a a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear the words that you want to speak to us directly today, that we would hear and receive them, Lord, by your grace, that we would be changed. We need that today. May your church rise up through your grace to be a people who come to be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we seek your face. So we open your word now and open our hearts to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I would say like everybody in this room and everybody watching, I too was shocked and horrified and saddened by what we saw at the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. All kinds of emotions were swirling around me then and they still are today. Things that I could name in here and probably things that I don't want to stand up here and name before you. Just horrified by the things that we're seeing. And as I think back about Wednesday and things that have kind of transpired after there's a question that's been going over in my mind. And it's a question that is actually the title of a book that many of y'all will know who Francis Schaeffer was, this great Christian theologian thinker of the 20th century. He wrote a book titled, How Then Shall We Live? How Then Shall We Live? It was written in 1976. And in this book, Schaeffer examines the breakdown of modern society and philosophy, theology, the arts, and in morals. Well, his book was republished in 2005, and I want to read you an excerpt from what the publisher wrote in the foreword. Here's what he wrote. Schaefer's question to each of us, how shall we then live, is especially urgent in our own day as we see the growing disintegration and decline of truth and morality throughout our world. What then is the answer to Schaefer's question? What is our response? It's a commitment to God's Word as truth. It's a compassion for a culture that is lost and dying without the Gospel. It's a commitment to the costly practice of truth in the midst of intellectual, moral, and philosophical battles of our day. It's living in the power and reality of the God who is there, bearing the witness of His truth across the full spectrum of life and culture. And as Schaefer stated at the end of his book, these words, this book is written in the hope that this generation may turn from the paths of death and may live. How pertinent those words are for us today. How pertinent they are for the words for the church today. I believe today more than ever, we as as followers of Jesus must be called up to stand, to stand in the truth of God, where the truth and Word of God so transforms our lives around the person of Jesus that we actually look and live differently. There's a lot of people crying out for hope today. A lot of people crying out for not understanding, trying to make sense of all the craziness that we're seeing unfold before us. Things that that we didn't think we would see here in America, but the reality is (laughs) we're as sinful as anybody else. What we need is the gospel truth to so reform and reshape our lives around the life of Jesus. 
toward the end of last year, I think it was probably at the beginning of December, as I was praying, the, the Lord impressed two words upon me that I felt were for His church and, and I believe were for St. Andrew's. One of the words I spoke about, I, I think it was in the second sermon that I gave um, during Advent, but it's the word division. And I spoke about how divided, obviously, we've seen our country come through differences, opinions on how to see COVID, uh, the, the racial things going on in our country, and then politically, the, the great divide. And, and I named in that sermon how we've seen that then infiltrate the church. But the church who is to be the body of Christ, of people united together, have become fractured in so many ways. So that was the first word the Lord brought to me then. The second word I want to name today, and it's apathy. Apathy among the church. Apathy of followers of Jesus becoming apathetic to their relationship with the Lord. Diving in to, to grow in that and then to live out of that relationship. So I want you to think about this reality that we've seen in this past year. It's easy to become apathetic when we're not gathered together for worship. Now, some of us are today, obviously, but there are a lot who aren't able to. But you can be easily become apathetic when we're not gathered as the body together in worship. It's easy to become apathetic when we're not physically meeting in community with one another. These days have made it very challenging for that. But one of the dangers is we can become apathetic in our walk with Jesus. It's easy to become apathetic when we're not reading and meditating upon God's Word. It's easy to become apathetic when we're not sharing our lives in such a way that we're being authentic and vulnerable with one another about the things, the real life things that are going on in each of our lives. It's easy to become apathetic when we're out there isolated doing this on our own. But I've also realized this, it's easy to become apathetic when we've given ourselves to causes that we have allowed to become greater than the gospel. Causes like COVID. Causes like the political divide. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a passion and, and, uh, of a direction. I'm not saying that at all. But when we've allowed something to become greater than the gospel, that's a problem. Or when we've given ourselves to watching the, the media and reading and, and, and us responding and, and we're spending more time doing that than sitting and reading God's Word and actually allowing it to inform how we're going to respond to the current cultural situation that we're in? Friends, it's easy to become apathetic in that way. We can easily become apathetic when the good news of the Gospel is no longer the main news that we're letting sink into our hearts and our minds. Friends, this is a time that we've got to wake up as a church and come together as the body of Christ to bring the light and hope of Christ to those around us. We have an incredible message. But the reality is this. We, for many of us, the message, I think, has become, I don't know, just kind of old hat. Something that we know and believe in, but we're not necessarily walking in and leaning in every day. What's going to call us out? of apathy or complacency or however you want to fill in the blank. I think it's got to be compelling news. It's got to be something compelling that's going to lead us out up into something greater. I think we need a renewed imagination of the gospel, 
Not a changed gospel, but the gospel that's real, that came to change our lives. We need a renewed imagination of who Jesus is and, and, and what He's come to do and what He's come to say that is true of you and me now because of what He's done. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at Exodus chapter 19. You might think that's an odd passage, but it's really not. Dustin read it just a moment ago, and it's printed in your bulletin. What I want to do is look is this. I want us to see, to come as we look at this passage, to an awakening of God's grace. What is going to shake us up? What's going to wake us up as the people? It's not someone saying, do this or do that or, you know, all the... No, I think what's going to wake us up is an awakening to God's grace. That's where we're going to begin. And then we're going to end with, what is our response to this grace? Okay? So let's first dive in to the need for an awakening of God's grace. In Exodus 19, we see what I believe is a stunning picture of God's grace. And it's a picture that doesn't just remain there, but you, you, you look at chapters ahead or, or before in the book of Exodus, and you see the story of where the Israelites, why they've gotten to where they are today. Now, chapter 19 is really the beginning of the whole section where God made his covenant with his people, where we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. This chapter sets the stage for that covenant, the commandments that God gave. And in this, in this scene, we see summed up the words that we often read in the Old Testament, where God said to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the beginning of this good news of God's grace for us. So look at, look at verse 4 of Exodus 19. We read these words. And you yourselves, you know, this is God speaking to Moses, and Moses is speaking this to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now right there is a picture of God's grace. Here you have the Israelites crying out. They were in bondage and slavery in Egypt for some 400 years. And they cry out, and God in His mercy and grace heard their cry, and He rescued them. He brought them out. And He led them out, as the passage says, as on eagles' wings, and He brought them to Himself. You want a stunning picture of grace. It's God coming in the midst of our need and doing something about it. Can I remind you what grace is this morning? Grace is God's undeserved love. It's undeserved rescue. It's undeserved relationship. It's undeserved forgiveness. It's the renewal of a life that sets us on a very different trajectory where we now can live because of grace as people who are loved and covered and forgiven on a renewed journey to show this world who our God is. What, what I love about what's happening here in Exodus 19 and in the chapters before this, it's a historical picture of something that God did for his people. But it represents for us a much deeper spiritual reality. And here's the reality. Every single one of us, we are all held captive by an enemy who seeks our downfall. We are all held captive by sin. Now I want you to think about this. We're all held captive by something, aren't we? If you have struggled with addiction, 
in the past or currently do. You know what it's like to struggle being captive to alcohol or drugs or pornography or fill in the blank. You know what it's like to be held captive. You cannot break out on your own. Still others are held captive by the approval of others, by a lack of forgiveness, not understanding that you're forgiven, but also held captive because you haven't forgiven somebody else. Some are held captive by guilt, things of the past. Some are held captive by material things. So I throw the question out to you. Maybe I named some of those for you, but what would you say holds you captive? Because there's something, friends, that holds everything, every one of us captive. But I want you to hear this morning is this. As God heard the cries of the Israelites under an oppressor, the Egyptians, so strong that there was no way they could get out on their own, God heard their cries and He rescued them. He came and brought them to Himself. What I want you to hear this morning is this good news of the gospel of God's grace that God has heard our cries. He's heard your cries. And He's done something, what I would say, far greater than what we read in the book of Exodus. Because what God ultimately came to do was to bring His Son among us, to be the rescuer, the ultimate one who would break the rod of the oppressor so that you and I, as we come to surrender to Him, to Jesus, we would actually find that we have been set free. I want to remind you of the words that Jesus spoke. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. Here's what he wrote, speaking of himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you want to talk about a stunning picture of God's grace. It is God sending His Son to set captives free, you and me, to set us free so that we could live as God created us to live, as sons and daughters. It's a picture of that that we see happening in Exodus chapter 19. I want to bring us back because in this picture, in, in this verse, this chapter, he, he speaks uh, of this in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? Being carried out on eagles' wings. I love that analogy, that picture, because an eagle is two things in a sense. An eagle is a bird of prey, but an eagle is also a rescuer. You see, Egypt would be the prey, and Egypt, I mean, and Israel would be rescued. This is who our God is, a God who hears our cries and rescues us by His grace. You see, the Israelites didn't do anything to earn God's favor. It wasn't because they were this great people. No, God just chose in His mercy to rescue them, to set His grace on them. Now, friends, when we think about this grace of God, it elicits a response, doesn't it? We can't just sit neutral. 
We can become numb to it, as many of us have, some of us have, but we don't just remain neutral. When we understand grace is grace, the good news of the gospel, we've got to ask that question that I asked at the very beginning, how then shall we live? In light of grace, how then shall we live? God gives us insight into this in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 19. We see this is what the Lord requires of us, people who are beneficiaries, if you will, of God's grace. So we read, Now therefore, God speaking, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you hear what our response is to be? He calls us to obey, to a new way of living. It's obedience. Now, for many of us, that word obey has a lot of, a lot of connotations to that, doesn't it? And I think for some, when you hear that call to obey, you hear it more as a burden as opposed to a joy. You know, friends, it's meant to be a joy and a privilege. But I think many of us misconstrue what's really going on because we haven't understood grace. And that word obey has become a burden. Now, I'll be honest with you, there are times that I live with a skewed view of obedience. I wonder if you do too at times. Let me give you some examples. When I think that I've got to do something to earn God's favor... Obedience has just become a burden rather than a joy. I wonder if you can identify with that. When I view obedience as a lack of freedom, it's become a burden instead of a joy. When I look at obedience as something that I've got to do so that God won't be angry with me, I seeing it as more of a burden than a joy. Friends, what we see in Exodus chapter 19 is this. Obedience flows out of a right understanding of God's grace. I love how Paul Tripp wrote about the word obedience. That's what he wrote. You don't need to obey to earn God's favor. I'm going to go on, but I think some of you might need to hear that this morning. You don't need to obey to earn, did you hear the right operative word, to earn God's favor. He goes on and writes, don't misunderstand me. Grace does not make obedience optional. Obedience is the lifelong calling for followers of Christ. But your obedience is never a fearful payment. Rather, it is this. It is a hymn of gratitude to the God who met you where you were and did for you what you could not have done for yourself. Isn't that good? Obedience, friends, is a hymn of gratitude gratitude to the God who met us where we were and did for us what we could not, what we cannot do on our own. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. Do you see that? And from that flows a heart, a longing to say, I want to obey because with you there is safety and goodness and life. Now, it's interesting, I, I, I chuckle inside a little bit when I read what happens next, um, because I probably would have said the exact same thing, but we know the reality, the, the outcome was very different. 
When you look at Exodus 19, verses 7 and 8, we read this. So God gives this call and this charge to the Israelites. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. (laughs) Really? Little did they know what he was about to say next by giving the Ten Commandments. All that he said we will do. Now, we don't have to know the story all that well to know that there wasn't a moment that they lived where they could not obey. They couldn't obey. They couldn't. And friends, you and I can't either. Not to the degree that we're called to. But here's the good news of the gospel. That's why God sent His Son into this world. He sent His Son to perfectly obey what you and I could not do. And in through His perfect obedience, He became... Now, this is crucial for the gospel. He became the perfect sacrificial lamb to pay for the price of your sins and mine. Is that not staggering? When you really step back and and let the gospel of God's grace sink in, that God Himself came among us, and He lived that perfect life that we couldn't do, but He gave His life so that you and I could come alive. We could come alive to God. We could come alive to all that He has for us. Friends, that is staggering good news, isn't it? That's the gospel of God's grace. And in this call of obedience, we see the great blessing that we live in now through Christ's obedience for us. Yes, we are called to obey, but we cannot earn His favor. We obey as a result of His favor. And here's what life looks like. Verses 5 and 6. I love the language here. That God said, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the blessing of living out of this grace. Let me ask you this. What difference would it make in your life if you knew you really, really knew that you were a treasured possession of the living God. What if you woke up tomorrow and that was the first thing that came to your mind? I'm a treasured possession of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am valued. I've got worth. He sees me as a treasure. Others may not, but I want you to know God does. And that's what matters So not only does he call us a treasured possession, he he names the reality that we are a priestly people. And I love this language because in the Old Testament, the priests had greater access to the presence of God than the Israelites did, than the other people did. But they didn't have total access. It was very limited access. And the beauty is we fast forward and think of this idea of a priestly people reminded that Jesus came among us as the great high priest. That as he gave his life for us, making the final sacrifice, I'm reminded of that scene in the Gospels where the curtain was torn. The veil over the Holy of Holies was torn in two, giving us through Christ access to God. Unlimited, unhindered access. Did you know what that means? One is that... 
We don't need to be ashamed to come before the presence of God because we are His people covered in the blood of Christ. But as the priestly people, we've got unlimited access to Him. They're where we can come with our burdens, our needs, the things that we're wrestling with, the things that we do not understand. We bring those to Him. He begins to help us understand and make sense of them. He's a God who welcomes us into His presence. The final picture we see here is that He calls His people a holy nation. Now think about that. They had no idea the calling that was placed upon them. But it was an incredible calling that they would be God's representatives on this earth. That the nations of the world would come to see through them who the one true God really is. You know, today is Epiphany Sunday. You see the, uh, the three wise men or three kings up there. We're reminded of the gospel story that Dustin read for us this morning. And it's that story that represents for us today that the gospel is not just for the Israelites, but it's for the entire world. This message, this good news of Jesus coming among us to reconcile us, to set captives free, for, is for all peoples. And do you know what that means for you and me when we really get this? when we begin to see we are a holy nation, we have the privilege, the calling to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, His voice in this world to a world, as we've seen this week, is in desperate need of hope, in desperate need of something. And friends, we've got the answer. So I want to close by bringing us back to the question, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Friends, we are, the, we are a holy nation. A people who have been given grace upon grace. It matters how you and I live today. Because the world needs to see something very different than it did on Wednesday. <laughs> the world around us, our friends, our neighbors, this city, this state, this country, the world needs to see the hope that the Savior has come. How then shall we live? We'll live in light of the gospel of God's grace to take this news to the nations that they would come and find life. Amen? May God call us up, friends. I've been in a lot of prayer over this. May He call us up ahead to be His priestly people. Not that we're better than anybody else. Not that we've got it, you know. But we're a people of great humility coming with a message of life. Amen? Maybe that be what we call people into. I want to close with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. So let's pray. Grant, O God, that Your holy and life-giving Spirit may so move every human heart and the hearts of the people of this land that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, hatreds cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.